Russia has violated the agreement. They've been violating it for many years. We're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to. So we're going to terminate the agreement. We're going to pull out. It was a Saturday, October 20th, 2018. The music you heard in the background, that's actually warm-up music for President Trump's speech because he was about to stand before the podium for a political rally. It's quite an odd place to announce the withdrawal from a major nuclear arms control treaty. But the question was asked, is the United States going to withdraw from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, also known as the INF Treaty? And he answered, yes, we are. There was a lot to unpackage from that statement. We've been waiting to put together an episode on this until we actually knew more about the timing of the withdrawal, how the U.S. government was going to handle the withdrawal, and a lot more. And now, at least for the most part, we seem to have that information. Earlier this month, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the U.S. was giving Russia 60 days to come back into compliance with the treaty, or else the U.S. will begin the process of withdrawing, which under Article 15 of the treaty will take another six months. That means if all of this happens the way we understand it, the INF Treaty could fall apart in August of 2019. So in a short amount of time, we're going to walk you through the history of one of the most important arms control treaties ever. While attempting to explain the Russian violation of the treaty, Russian counter-accusations of the U.S. violating the treaty, how the world might look without the treaty, and what, if anything, can be done to save the agreement. And thankfully, we'll have two experts to help us out. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Let's begin in the late 1970s. It's the Cold War, Jimmy Carter is President of the United States, and... Soviet Union was deploying its new medium-range nuclear missiles, the SS-20s. They were targeted on Western Europe. SS-20s were ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads that could travel about 3,000 miles and strike every capital of Europe. Their deployment caused great alarm among the United States and its allies in Europe and NATO. They respond by announcing what is known as the dual-track strategy, one track involving negotiations with the Soviet Union for an arms control agreement to limit these medium- and intermediate-range forces, and the other track announcing the modernization of its own missiles within these ranges to deploy in December of 1983. By 1983, Ronald Reagan was now president, the Soviet Union had deployed hundreds of these missiles. Negotiations had been ongoing for a few years, and progress was scant. President Reagan had been using strong language, labeling the Soviet Union the evil empire, and reiterating the U.S.-NATO deployment of nuclear missiles to Europe. The first of these missiles arrived in West Germany, causing the talks to stall all the way until 1985. Proposals and counterproposals were made, followed by more proposals and more counterproposals, mostly focused on either a freeze of the missiles and or a cap of the number of missiles. But then in 1986, President Reagan and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev met at Hofti House in Reykjavik, Iceland. And after returning from a meeting with General Secretary Gorbachev, and that meeting marked new progress in U.S.-Soviet relations. For the first time on the highest level, we and the Soviets came close to an agreement on real reductions of both strategic and intermediate-range weapons. 
That historic meeting laid the foundation for further talks, and suddenly both sides weren't talking about freezes or caps. They were talking about the elimination of the weapons altogether. And by 1987... Welcome to the White House. This ceremony and the treaty we're signing today are both excellent examples of the rewards of patience. On the Soviet side, over 1,500 deployed warheads will be removed, and all ground-launched intermediate-range missiles, including the SS-20s, will be destroyed. On our side, our entire complement of Pershing II and ground-launched cruise missiles, with some 400 deployed warheads, will all be destroyed. Additional backup missiles on both sides will also be destroyed. But the importance of this treaty transcends numbers. You can say that again. It was an unprecedented treaty because it eliminated an entire class of missiles globally, short and intermediate range, ground launch, ballistic and cruise missiles. That's Lynn Rustin, the vice president of the Global Nuclear Policy Program at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Lynn has previously held senior positions in the White House, State Department and Congress. And she's a premier expert on nuclear arms control, nonproliferation, and national security policy. So here's why the INF Treaty is so important. As Lynn noted, it eliminated an entire class of ground-launched, medium-range, and intermediate-range cruise and ballistic missiles, nuclear and non-nuclear, that can travel distances ranging from 500 to 5,500 kilometers. In miles, that's about 300 to 3,400. The idea here is fairly straightforward. Those missiles can travel from their launch point to destination within minutes, which means they're especially destabilizing because if one side fears that the other is going to use those missiles, they know they won't have much, if any time, to respond. So naturally, they deploy similar missiles to say, hey, we can play the same game. And then everyone is on edge, and the chances of an unintended conflict only increase. By getting rid of those missiles, this can all be avoided. By 1991, both the United States and Soviet Union, later Russia and 12 Soviet successor states, had eliminated all of the missiles covered by the treaty, which totaled nearly 2,700 missiles. But that's not the only reason why this treaty is so important. It was also groundbreaking because of the intrusive verification provisions and monitoring provisions it involved, including monitoring at the Vodkinsk missile production site in the Soviet Union at the time. We had inspectors living there year-round monitoring missiles as they were in their canisters exiting the facility to make sure that the canisters were of a length that corresponded with permitted range of missiles as opposed to the prohibited range, and that was extraordinary. This is critical. The INF Treaty was the first ever arms control agreement to have so-called intrusive methods of verification. Both sides were able to perform inspections on the other to ensure compliance. It builds trust while also ensuring verification. No wonder President Reagan always quoted a Russian proverb when talking about this treaty. Trust, but verify. Per the treaty, the inspections ended in 2001. But even without inspections, all parties are expressly prohibited from producing, testing, and deploying any ground-launched missile within the 500 to 5,500 kilometer range. I stress ground-launched missiles because air and sea-launched missiles of any range are allowed under the treaty. I repeat, the INF Treaty only covers ground-launched missiles within the defined range. More on that later. So... What's happened over 30 years that has put this landmark treaty at risk? Why is the Trump administration potentially abandoning it? Well, the argument is typically twofold. One, the treaty is archaic and not in the U.S. interest any longer. And two, 
Russia is violating the treaty, so why should we constrain ourselves while they don't? I should note that at face value, both of these arguments make at least some sense. But when you dig a bit deeper, there's a lot more at play. Let's start with the first argument, which goes something like this. It's an old treaty. It's a treaty that responded to the requirements of the early 1980s. The world has changed. The treaty is out of date. It does not meet the interests of its signatories. That's Olya Oliker, a senior advisor and director of the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. She's a premier expert on Russian security policies and the strategic relationship between the United States and Russia, among other things. What she's referencing is the argument that other major powers are not bound by the treaty, especially China, which is true. About a decade ago, that was the main argument of Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's now also an argument of more hawkish U.S. analysts and some in the Trump administration. Many other states, including China, North Korea, and Iran, are not parties to the INF Treaty. This leaves them free to build all the intermediate intermediate range missiles that they would like. There is no reason the United States should continue to cede this crucial military advantage to revisionist powers like China. But there's a lot more to the story than just this simple argument. For one, as I mentioned before, the INF Treaty only covers ground-based missiles. It doesn't, I repeat, doesn't, cover air-launched and sea-launched missiles of any range, which means we have a whole lot of ways right now to counter China, put Chinese targets at risk, or any other way you want to say it. You don't have to take my word for it either. Take the word of General Paul Selva, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. During a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing in 2017, he answered a question from Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican of Arkansas, about this directly. And as you'll hear, he called it, quote, a bridge too far, end quote, to say that we can't respond to China because of the INF Treaty. I want to bring your attention to Admiral Harris's testimony. Uh, He stated a few months ago in this committee that over 90% of China's land-based missile forces fall between the range of 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Of course, China is not in violation of the treaty because China is not a signatory to the treaty. Only the United States and Russia are. Uh, We don't have any matching offensive capability due to our treaty obligations. Do you interpret this imbalance or this as a possible offensive imbalance in the Asia Pacific? Senator, it would be easy to interpret that as a offensive imbalance, but for the fact that we're not restricted from fielding ballistic missile or cruise missile systems that could be launched from ships or airplanes under the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. It is specific to land-based missiles. And so with respect to whether or not we use the INF Treaty as a reason to say targets inside of China might not be held uh, at risk, I think is, is a bridge too far. I believe we can assert that the deployment of missile systems on aircraft and ships would allow us to hold those targets at risk. Olya makes the exact same point. What can you do with your naval assets? What can you do with your air-based assets? Why do you need the ground-based capability? I'm not convinced that this is necessary in the Asian theater. And Lynn. I find it odd that these conversations always take place without reference to the geography of the countries involved. The United States doesn't have medium-range missiles generally because we don't actually have adversaries or threats that are within the range of a medium-range missile. China has lots of medium-range missiles, not because of the United States, because of, but because of its geography. So the question becomes, do we need land-based missiles in this range in the Asian theater? 
And I'll just say that when I was in the Obama administration, I never heard, in the, in the context of considering how to address the Russian violation, I never heard anyone in the Pentagon raise a serious issue that we actually had a requirement for this class of missiles in the region. The we-need-to-withdraw-from-INF-because-of-China argument gets even weaker when you look at the practical implementation of it. Let's say you really believe that building and then deploying INF-range ground-launched missiles in Asia is a good idea. Okay, the next question becomes, where do you deploy them? Because the map isn't exactly helpful to this line of thinking. There are very few places where deployment is even possible, because outside of China, there's a whole lot of water and not all that much land. And even in those places where ground basing is possible, there are major domestic political considerations. Here's Lynn explaining. There's implications of countries like Japan and South Korea, and I guess I've heard Australia too, but I I think those countries will actually be quite reluctant to accept this class of missiles on their territory because it's obviously going to be very provocative to China. The Japanese government has actually publicly called U.S. plans to withdraw from the treaty, quote, undesirable, end quote. And there was an uproar in South Korea, and from China, after the previous South Korean government agreed to take a theater missile defense system known as THAAD, T-H-A-A-D. The current government very reluctantly accepted the decision, and there were protests over it. Imagine if this was an offensive system. Not only would it disrupt South Korean civil society and seriously damage relations with China, it would also almost certainly upset the South Korean government's approach to diplomacy with North Korea. The chances of South Korea taking any such system is extremely unlikely. And that's the problem with this entire argument in the first place. Skeptics of the INF Treaty seem to think that we need these missiles because of China, but they don't ever explain exactly who will take them and where. Will we put them all on the tiny American island of Guam? Vietnam? Australia? The debate is so hypothetical, it's not even really a debate. It's just theory. And as General Selva made clear anyway, our air and sea launch missiles are more than capable of taking care of the job in the region. Maybe we should just stick with those. Okay, on to the second argument, and the one that's made more widely. The U.S. government assesses that Russia is violating the INF Treaty, and the United States isn't. And Russia's violation means we shouldn't be hamstrung while they do whatever they want. This is complex, so let's start with answering the main question here. How is Russia violating the treaty? Russia is violating this treaty by deploying a ground-launched cruise missile that violates the range, and that is a serious issue. Indeed it is. In 2014, the State Department made public that Russia was violating the treaty by developing and testing a ground-launched cruise missile known as the SSC-8, or as the Russians designate it, the 9M729. In 2017, the New York Times reported that this missile system has been deployed in multiple battalions. Earlier this month, the Wall Street Journal reported that there are fewer than 100 of these missiles, but the battalions are deployed in western Russia, central Russia, and at a missile test site. This is clearly a major problem. The Obama administration used a combination of public and private diplomacy to pressure the Russians about it. All of this debate is taking place in the context of how do we respond to the Russian violation. And the question is, is a symmetrical response a sensible one? And should we, first and foremost, be trying to continue to keep pressure on Russia to return to compliance with the treaty, number one? And then number two, in a period 
when it's not complying, what's the best response? During the Obama administration, the assessment was that we wanted to keep the pressure on Russia, keep its violation in a spotlight, and basically try to convince it to return to compliance. Some hawks in Congress, however, felt that a symmetrical response was necessary. This was later also supported by the Trump administration. They managed to get funding for research of a conventional, e.g. non-nuclear, INF-range ground-launch cruise missile in response. Research alone, by the way, is not a violation of the treaty. But a lot of opponents of the move, ourselves included, made a similar point to the Asia argument. If this ever came about, where are you going to put this thing? And if there's nowhere to put it, why are we wasting millions of dollars on research for it? Why can't land and sea-based missiles do the job here as well? But let's say for argument's sake that Poland or Estonia, two NATO countries with more hawkish governments toward Russia, would take this missile if we ever produced it. Beyond completely splitting the NATO alliance, a goal of Russia, I would add, Here's Olya explaining why it still doesn't make sense. From a military standpoint, neither the United States nor Russia needs these things in a European context. We have air and naval systems that do all of these same things. So if you were to deploy it in a Poland or an Estonia, what that does is it sends a very clear signal to the Russians that the Poles or the Estonians hate Russia, which I think the Russians know, but it's intentionally and inherently provocative. So it doesn't really change the military balance in any way, but it changes the violently thumbing your nose balance. A natural skeptic might say, okay, look, I get it. Matching the Russian violation with our own missile system doesn't make sense. But diplomatic efforts haven't exactly worked either. So what's your plan? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, the Russians have steadfastly denied their violation and have instead counter-accused the U.S. of violating the treaty. One of their accusations is worth addressing, and it goes something like this. The Russian concern, as I understand it, is that the um, Aegis Ashore launchers in uh, Romania and Poland, which are missile defense launchers, their concern is that they could be used to also launch offensive cruise missiles. That would be a violation of the INF Treaty. I mean, that's not what the purpose of those launchers is. They're missile defense launchers. This might sound counterintuitive, but we can actually sort of use the Russian accusation against us as leverage. Think about it this way. If they were forthcoming on the missile that is of grave concern to us and our allies, you could imagine some kind of a situation where we would offer transparency measures or confidence-building measures to give them assurances that we're not deploying offensive cruise missiles in those launchers. So you could, you could imagine some kind of solution like that, also one where they probably didn't concede the violation of their missile that we're concerned about, but would, in some kind of a goodwill gesture, agree to pull it out of deployment and eliminate it. I mean, that would be the solution. It, it's a very challenging solution on both sides and would take a lot of will to get there. It's very challenging indeed, but not insurmountable. It's also worth it. In fact, there's a bit of precedence for this. In the 1980s, Russia was violating an arms control agreement called the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. I'll explain more about this treaty in a moment, but the most important point is this. Russia was constructing a radar that violated the treaty, and the United States worked through public and private diplomacy to get them back into compliance. This topic could be an entire episode in and of itself, but the bottom line is simple. It worked. In 1990, about six years after the U.S. first made the accusation, Russia destroyed the radar and came back into compliance. Russia's violation of the INF Treaty is serious. There are no ifs and buts about it. 
But those advocating for the death of the INF Treaty often ignore the consequences, the chances of a new arms race that no one wants and no one can win. It could be the 1980s all over again. With no constraints, Russia would likely build even more, a lot more missiles that can travel between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Then the political pressure is on for the U.S. to do the same, even if there was nowhere to actually deploy them. It would be an outrageously expensive and dangerous gamble, identical to the worst aspects of the Cold War. And that's not all. Former President George H.W. Bush passed away while I was beginning the very early stages of this episode. He was 94 years old. I don't think it's very controversial to say that the elder President Bush represented a different time in American politics. He guided the United States and to some extent the world through a tricky geopolitical environment as the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended. But there was another aspect to President Bush that is far too often overlooked, his commitment to reducing nuclear threats. He steered through major changes to the U.S. nuclear arsenal, including massive reductions in U.S. tactical nuclear weapons. He also signed the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START, which committed both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, later Russia, to make drastic reductions in their strategic nuclear arsenals, including both warheads and their delivery systems. START became critical to what us nuclear nerds like to call the arms control architecture. This architecture includes quite a few agreements, but we'll focus on the three key ones. START, the INF Treaty, and the Anti-Ballistic Missile, or ABM Treaty. They were a very effective combination. START reduced and capped the number of long-range nuclear weapons. INF eliminated medium and intermediate-range nuclear weapons, and the ABM Treaty prohibited the large-scale deployment of missile defense systems. Why was that a good idea? Because if one country deployed a bunch of systems that could, in theory, shoot down the other side's missiles, the other side is only incentivized to build more missiles to overwhelm and defeat them, which then causes the original side to build more interceptors, and you can see where this is going. You have an arms race. So combined, these three treaties both greatly reduced the number of nuclear weapons and prevented future buildups. And here's the thing about all of these agreements. They were signed by Republicans. President Nixon signed ABM, President Reagan signed INF, and President Bush signed START, though it should be said that a lot of the groundwork for START took place during the Reagan administration. Today, however, a lot has changed. President Bush's son, President George W. Bush, pulled out of the ABM Treaty in 2002, setting the threat of terrorism after 9-11. Today, I have given formal notice to Russia, in accordance with the treaty, that the United States of America is withdrawing from this almost 30-year-old treaty. I have concluded the ABM Treaty hinders our government's ability to develop ways to protect our people from future terrorists or rogue state missile attacks. This decision was actually made at the urging of the same hawks who now want to get out of the INF Treaty. And we're still feeling the negative impacts today. For one, the system that we've built to attempt to intercept long-range missiles has a total cost estimate of nearly $70 billion and a success rate in highly scripted tests of less than 50%. In other words, it doesn't work very well if at all. And Russia, which was adamantly opposed to the withdrawal from ABM, continues to cite the withdrawal as the reason for building new nuclear capabilities. 
We'll have a lot more on this topic in a future episode, but here's Olya discussing how ABM withdrawal is still being felt. It was the U.S. withdrawal from the ABM treaty that messed all of this up because the whole idea is you've got defensive weapons, you've got offensive weapons, you don't have a single treaty that connects them, but you've got the whole architecture, so it all fits together, and that makes everybody feel that much safer. The U.S. pulls out of half of it. Somehow they manage to cobble it together and keep it going, but the whole idea is that you really believe in this, in this whole system if people can withdraw whenever they feel like it. So the ABM Treaty is gone, and maybe INF is going to be gone soon. But at least we have START, right? Well, for now. In 2009, START expired, and it was replaced by New START, which was signed in 2010 by President Obama, and even further reduced the number of deployed strategic nuclear warheads and deployed and non-deployed delivery systems on both sides. It received a strong bipartisan endorsement in the Senate, and has huge support from the intelligence community and the Pentagon, not just because of the weapon caps, but also because it allows for on-site inspections of Russian nuclear facilities. Here's the commander of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, General Hyten, giving his support for the treaty and warning about what would happen without it. I've stated for the record in the past, and I'll state again that I'm a, uh, a big supporter of the New START agreement. Uh, I believe that, uh, especially when it comes to nuclear weapons and nuclear capabilities, that uh, bilateral, verifiable arms control agreements are essential to our ability to provide an effective deterrent. If you, move th if you remove that ef effective deterrent structure, uh, which is the New START Treaty, it makes it very difficult for us to know the levels. The risk would be an arms race. New START expires in 2021, but there's an option to extend the treaty by five years to 2026. This is widely supported. Russian President Vladimir Putin has more or less already offered to extend, but the Trump administration has wavered. There's talk of only extending the treaty if the Russians concede on other things not related to it. There are also rumors that certain hawks in the Trump administration are so against New START that they don't just want not to extend the treaty, they want to withdraw from it, just like INF. Their view is pretty simple. The U.S. should have no constraints on its nuclear arsenal, and arms control is not in our interest. Lynn and Olya are concerned about this, too. I'm very concerned about the potential impact of INF withdrawal on New START. People are very worried that the demise of the INF treaty will be followed by a further erosion of the arms control architecture. Both sides are complying with New START. The treaty permits a five-year extension without needing any further action by the legislative branches, by our Senate or the Russian Federation Council. And yet we haven't made the decision, unfortunately, to extend it. To me, it's a no-brainer. And in fact, I don't think the INF treaty and even Russia's violation of INF is a reason to not extend New Star. And in fact, if anything, it just reinforces the need to maintain this one area in the, in the bilateral nuclear relationship that's still regulated, and I would say is still providing tremendous mutual benefit, not just in terms of its limits, but the intrusive verification, the confidence, the predictability it gives about what each side is doing. So I worry that we could be headed to a period of complete deregulation in the nuclear field, and I don't think that will enhance our security at all. I am worried by these conversations about negotiating the extension of New START which suggests to me that all sorts of conditions that might be put on it that could, in the end, destroy and kill the treaty. I really think that New START extension is binary for this administration. They get a choice. They either extend New START 
or they don't. Look, I, I do worry a lot about what this does to arms control as a whole. These treaties take forever to negotiate. And there's a lot of trust lost by Russian violations and American withdrawals instead of both sides coming to the table and talking about this stuff. By withdrawing from the INF Treaty and either destroying New START or allowing it to expire, we will not only destroy the nuclear legacies of both President Reagan and the first Bush, we will also allow nearly the entire architecture of nuclear arms control to crumble. This may sound like alarmism. I promise it's not. Here's John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, answering a question about what he wants to be remembered for. Keep in mind that Mr. Bolton was instrumental in withdrawing from the ABM Treaty. What would you say, looking back after uh, a few years as National Security Advisor, if you could achieve three things, what would they be? What would you call them? Call, call those a, a, a win, a successful term. Getting out of the Iran nuclear deal, getting out of the INF Treaty. <laughs> okay. Number three, to be determined. Considering what we know about Mr. Bolton's view of arms control, we don't think he'd want to stop at the destruction of three agreements. As we continue to contemplate the passing of esteemed leaders like President George H.W. Bush, we should all think about the world they were trying to create. Here at the center, we'll be doing everything we can to get the facts out there to those who need it most, policymakers, the media, and the public. And the facts are clear. Nuclear arms control agreements have made and continue to make the world safer. We escaped nuclear disaster in the last Cold War by investing in arms control. We may not get so lucky again. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. A special thanks to Lynn Rustin and Olya Oliker for their exceptional analysis on this episode. And a special thanks to you as well for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.